Welcome back to another episode of Journey of a Fearless Female. I'm your host, Paola Rosser, and this week, it's my pleasure to introduce Suhan Beck. She's a motivational speaker, serial entrepreneur, and author. She's a Syrian refugee and a Circassian exile from the North Caucasus to a Syrian refugee of experiencing gang terror in America. Suhan brings the most unique perspectives on breaking down fears and tribalism down to the lowest common denominator. Her multicultural background is jam-packed with exciting stories of dodging bullets, bombs, and FBI chases that will drop jaws and cultural biases from any audience. From street gangs to corporate gangs at the highest level, she cracked the code to understand the universal language of our innate survivalism instinct. Suhan Beck is also the founder and CEO of Elage. Five years ago, Suhan took her grandfather's medicinal wound care formula and launched it into a global mass retail without a shark tank, a loan, or an investor. From a humble little street fair booth in Palm Desert, California, that she only made $259 on her first weekend, to an international brand, her skincare company, Elage, is a proud legacy in staying true to her mission. Let the healing begin. Everybody, please welcome Suhan. Thank you. I'm so excited. Oh, so am I. Thank you so much, Paola. I met Suhan recently at this WeOC, shout out to Myrna. Uh, (laughs) We love Myrna. I know. We met at this Women's Entrepreneurs of Orange County event, and she was the keynote speaker. And while she was talking, I was like, this woman is speaking my language. (laughs) (laughs) She needs to be on my podcast. So tell us a little bit about who you are. Well... I'm definitely multicultural. I kind of blend into any culture. So if I'm in America, you would never know me from not being American. And I love that. If I go back to the Middle East and the Arab world, I blend in there as well. I'm Mm -hmm. lucky I do speak the languages. You know, I like being a (laughs) homegirl. Yeah. So I enjoy just blending into the cultures and and manifesting that and really learning as much as possible. I secretly think of myself as Latina. (laughs) Well, welcome. (laughs) Bienvenido. (laughs) So that's kind of like my secret fantasy of like, I really wanted to be Latina. But I'm also learning French and, you know, fostering that as well. Never thought I would, but it just... You know, just being multiculturalism, you know, is just such a beautiful thing. So I was born in Syria, and this was right after the 1967 war, the six-day war between Israel and Syria. So we are Circassians. We come from southern Russia. And we had been fighting the Russians for hundreds, thousands of years. Okay. And we were awesome. We were the fiercest of warriors. If you look up Circassian, somewhere in Wikipedia or any of the dictionaries or any of the encyclopedias, there was one adjective that was always used to describe Circassians, and that was brave, fearless warriors. That's awesome. That was our trademark. Mm -hmm. And my culture, Circassians, we actually go all the way back to being the original Amazons. Wow. The women were considered beautiful. And, you know, this is not a, you know, showy offy kind of a thing. Forgive me, audience, please. This is not the thing. They encompassed what was called the Euro-Asian look. So they have the European color. They have the Asian exotic, you know, look. So the women were always, you know, casted into the harems and cast like they were the prized possessions. Jinkis mm-hmm. Khan and that whole, you know, scenario. So finally, in the final stage of industrialization of war weapons, that's when we, the last samurais of the Caucasus Mountains, 
could no longer fight the Russians off. So May 21st, 1864 is the final exodus. Like that was the final surrender. And from there, there was the biggest genocide on European soil in modern times. It was the first and largest genocide in modern times. And it was Circassians. Totally unacknowledged from any of the history books. Absolutely, because I've never heard of it. That's right. It's so, never been taught because so, I've never heard of it. So I don't really exist. You're, you're like, I'm a ghost. Yeah. Technically, there's six million of us ghosts still mm. surviving, but we didn't exist. So when the Russians finally won this war, did they just tell you guys get off the land? Or yes. Did we they... were, you know, basically suffer the consequences of basically being erased thereafter. So about 500,000 of us remained. And then there was another genocide thereafter. From 1864, there were a couple of other genocides. And then Stalin really did a number on us in the 40s, in the 1940s. And and that's when Stalin came in and basically did a whole full clean out. And then we were technically deleted, finally. You know, that there was no mention of us, nothing. So the land was originally called Circassia mm-hmm. and Kafkasia, and all of that was taken out. So my grandfather was one of the ones that was in the exodus of leaving on the boats from the ports of Sochi, you know, where the Winter Olympics were. Those were built on our sacred burial grounds. So I want you to picture, you know, the American Indian sacred burial grounds because we truly honor our elders and our, and our ancestors. Very similar to the American Indians. They loved our land. It, we have, you know, a kindred spirit with them. So they basically took the land and erased us and deleted us and have never acknowledged us on any level. So those of us that had left, like my grandfather, Dr. Muhammad Ali Shahalok, he basically arrived in the Middle East, studied medicine in Turkey and in Greece. And he was the one that actually created the formula for Alaj. So it was that doctor. And so, you know, we arrived in Syria and, and actually he was in Turkey for a while. He was the doctor for the the last of the the rulers of Turkey, and he married the the daughter. She was an only girl, and he inherited all of their land because they never had children. She okay. died, and then he became the doctor of the Ottoman army empire, and then Turkey claimed him as their own, as the Turkish doctor, even though he wasn't Turkish. Anyway, so we landed in Syria, and then in the Golan Heights, and then the war. So that was the first exodus. That was the first, you know, genocide exodus. Then the 1967 war, the Six-Day War, we had a lot of land in the Golan Heights, and then the war happened, and in six days, everything was gone. So that was another exile refugee status, and that was when my father basically said, no, we will not live in tents. We are Circassians. He forced the government of Syria to find housing for us and whatnot, and that we would not be treated you know, as badly as the wow. Palestinians were. And that's fearless. It is. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and that's where that comes from. And then he also fought because the Syrian government wanted to assimilate our names into non-Circassian sounding names. So my maiden name is Pshahaluk. And that's spelled in the most horrible way because it's spelled B-C-H-I-H-A-L-O-U-K. So Americans can only pronounce it in the most vulgar way of Pshahaluk. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the Syrian government wanted to assimilate them to more Muslim sounding names. Mm you know, Arabic sounding names. My father filed a lawsuit against the government of Syria to say, no, we are, you know, we are of royal heritage and this and that, and we deserve our names. That's awesome. So, so we, he kept the names. So from 1967, that that was another exodus. Then there was the revolution of 1971. And my father worked 
for the Syrian government. And had we stayed, my father was anti-socialist. He was very democratic and, you know, his mindset was very American and capitalism. And he was very romanticized, you know, by that whole American dream. So I think it was uh, West Side Story, the musical, that was like his enchantment and whatever. And, and it came true later. So then we escaped on a midnight train through Turkey. And the guy that was the last stopover um, stopped the entire train, had my family evacuate the train. And he had his head turned. And, you know, he's like, Nur Salam Abshaluk, you are, you know, trying to escape your homeland, you know, your borrowed homeland that has been so kind to you and your people. And, you know, yada, yada, yada. And my dad was like sweating bullets. And in my mom was just shaking, thinking, this is it. We're done. You know, we're going to be decapitated tonight. Yeah. It's weird that they say you're trying to flee the land. Like, why wouldn't they think you're on going on vacation <laughs> versus like you're trying to run away? Yeah, it was the timing. It was definitely the timing. And, and then it turns out the guy realized my dad was like really going to lose it any minute. He turns around and it was his high school college buddy. <gasps> And what a stroke of luck. Yeah. And he joked with him. And then he stopped, you know, he had the whole train stop for three hours while they get drunk and they eat sausages and, you know, all of this other stuff and celebrate their last brouhaha. Oh, my God. It's so bad. Yeah. But that's awesome, though. Yeah. So then we ended up in a camp in Germany for 18 months. And then through the Tolstoy Foundation, um, we were able to come to the United States legally. And um, it was my dad's dream to, you know, come and be a journalist. I remember... I hated New Jersey because it was the most traumatic of childhoods mm -hmm. for me. It was a very, very, very lonely existence. And mm -hmm. I've sworn never to go back to New Jersey because it was so traumatic. So my first memory in life was being left alone when I was about three, four years old. And my parents had to go deliver newspapers. And my brothers were, you know, 10 years older than me. And so they were there and they were helping them and whatever. And so, they, you know, that was the only thing. So I begged them, please don't leave me alone. Don't leave me alone. So I would end up in the station wagon in the back when it was like 20 degrees, 30 degrees. And the station wagon back door had to be open for them to throw the newspapers out to the to the homes. And um, my brothers would tease me and say that, you know, if you close your eyes, if you fall asleep, you know, you're going to stay home tomorrow. So I had to keep my eyes open and I had to put the rubber bands around the newspaper and then put them in the plastic bags. So you were three years old. That was my job. At three years old. Yeah, I've been working nonstop. Oh, my gosh. So, and then we ended up um, saving money, you know, literally from that newspaper. We saved enough money to buy a restaurant, like a coffee shop, lunch and deli, and then a house on top of it. So our house was right upstairs. And we lived in Clifton. So it was on 117 Valley Road, Clifton, New Jersey, 07013. Never forget. <laughs> and the neighborhood actually was a pretty clean good neighborhood. However, we were the only ethnic minority family. It was the 70s. Unemployment was so bad and the energy crisis. And of course, you know, the, the one thing that everybody wants to do is blame immigrants. So even though, you know, we were holding our own, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't rely on unemployment. We didn't rely on any handouts. You know, we're, we're proving, you know, we're, we're doing our part, you know, and immediately within, you know, four or five years, we bought our own business in our own home and the, uh, you know, the people in the neighborhood, it was kind of like a mafia gang mentality where either you pay the taxes for protection or you're, you know, going to be forever on the, you know, on the shit list, on the shit list. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we were on the shit list. And so you guys didn't pay the taxes? We did not. That's awesome. That's another fearlessness. Like, seriously, I would have been like, okay, I'll pay it. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. Because, you know, my father was just like, you don't know where we come from. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I'm not scared of you. You want to terrorize? I'll show you. I wrote the book. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Is it? (laughs) So as a young child, I learned self-defense. I learned how to hold a knife. So if this is a knife, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a way to hold it. You can't hold a knife like this because it's easy to pull out. But if you hold it this way, then it's harder. For those of you who can't see, she held the knife or the water bottle (laughs) um, in a way that you would hold it. Like, uh, think of what's that movie? Psycho. Yes. The way they hold the knife in the movie Psycho. Um, So yes, that's how you should hold the knife. If you hold the knife any other way, she says it's easy for you to just like slap it out of your hand. So for self-defense purposes, ladies only. (laughs) And that is my five-year-old self telling, you know, this is my first memory. Wow. And so we had the gangs that were constantly on our trail. So it was a daily battle of them against us. And we had a loyal American restaurant crowd that were very much vying for us and Mm -hmm. helping us out. And teaching me, you know, the American ways. I'll never forget, you know, the American customers that were so wonderful to us. Took me to my first movie theater and Mrs. Beatty that showed me how to take care of little birds. And, you know, like they were so loving and kind. So amidst the war mafia style of terrorism that we endured, there was such tenderness and and beauty. You know, there was no issue of discrimination or racism from our part because we knew that look at the wonderful part of humanity here. The first home security alarm system was basically a little gadget with a wire cord that hung on doorknobs. And my job every night was to go and to turn them on. So we saved the batteries. So they're battery operated, they're motion sensors. And so if anybody tries to jiggle the doorknob, they move, sound the alarm. That was the first home alarm security system. We were the first ones to get fiberglass windows because the bullets. And my brother bought a Toyota Celica and they bombed it right in front of our house. (gasps) Really? Yeah, Yeah, they bombed it right in front of our house. On Valley Road, there's only one way in, there's one way out. And so they, um, one night, they put these big boulders um, onto the street to create a barricade. And then they poured gasoline all around our house and tried to set us on fire. So, yeah. So, and then we had a German shepherd. They poisoned that dog. And then we got a professionally trained dog. And that was my my sweet pea. Her name was sweet pea. She was a Doberman. And we had to go to the professional trainer for a month or two. So the trainer's scent and our scent was feeding her at the same time. So she only eats from us you know, from our hands. And this dog saved our lives so many times. And so my only childhood friend, because we, I couldn't trust anybody. We didn't have that ability to trust anybody. And nobody wanted to be friends with us in the neighborhood with kids because I was such a liability. That is so devastating to go from, you know, where you were living and you're thinking you're fleeing and you're going to go start a better life in America and get the American dream. And it's nothing but a nightmare. It was not a nightmare, Paola. It was West Side Story. It seems like it. Like to wake up to know that your house is 
trying to get burned down and there's barricades like it, it was survival i mean it was very mafia gang mentality and you know like I just think of them as they were in survival mode, too. Yeah. You know? And they had fear in them that if you guys came in, then their jobs are going to be gone. And- exactly. Yeah, it really was. And so herd mentality. Like, why? Because we have protection with the, the communal, you know, gang. You know, yeah. like, we need that in order for people to respect us and fear us and that. It's survival. That's all it is. It really is. If you break it down. I mean, all of these experiences served me really well later, you know. <laughs> I'm so, sure. So, but there was one moment in time that I remember, and that was, um, there was always break-ins, and they were, they were always trying to, you know, get in. And so downstairs where the restaurant was, there was always the chance of someone breaking in, going through into the basement, into the store, the restaurant. We'd be upstairs watching TV, and my dad would say something like, Suhan, go get us ice cream downstairs, you know? And then I very much remember, and this was my first experience identifying what fear was. Because in my family, fear was not acceptable. It was not an option, period. Like there was no possibility to have fear. So all I remember was being paralyzed. You know, the idea of going downstairs just to get some ice cream was so scary. But I was more scared of my father. Not that he was abusive in any way, but the idea of revealing that I was afraid was so scary. So I tried to show myself as being cleaning or doing some other chores or tasks to occupy myself so he would get distracted so he wouldn't ask me to go back downstairs. And then finally he realized I was afraid. And that's when he taught me how to hold a knife and, you know, and how to punch someone in the nose upwards so that the cartilage of the nose goes back into the brain cavity. I was about seven, eight years old at this point. So that was my first experience of, you know, fearlessness and that it was just not an option. And it was part of our culture, part of my family's culture, you know, some way back from the Circassians, from being Amazons, the fearless warriors, to modern day. And I really think that there's such a thing as genetic memory. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'll fast forward. You know, we ended up in California after 10 years of New Jersey. Finally, we said no more, whatever, da, da, da. And then we moved to California. We bought a 7-Eleven in Whittier, California, L.A. in the 80s. (laughs) So we went from those gangs to Mexican gangs, which I loved my Mexican gangs. (laughs) I I don't even know how to describe to you. Like, I became their hermanita. Oh, okay. And I... Little sister, for those of you who don't know Spanish. So... So what happened is I I really at a young age, so now I'm 11, 12 years old, 13, 14, I would run an entire shift by myself. I'm selling beer illegally. At I'm, the 7-Eleven yeah, in yeah, Whittier. Yeah. And this was the 80s. I had big blonde hair. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my, my nail polish matched my outfit all the time, you know, uh-huh. so I was that girl and I had no fear. You know, and the thing is, is like I had meat beaters, I had a 45 Magnum, I had guns, I had baby food jars were strategically positioned anywhere in the store so that if I was cornered anywhere, I'd be able to hit and smash somebody with a jar. Our whole life was based on strategic thinking, you know, and so I didn't have to be fearful because I had plan B's everywhere. So it wasn't part of the equation. It was, are you prepared? You know, there was so much time and effort and energy placed into preparation that it just diminished the fear, you know? And I wish that 
you know, for anyone that's listening to this is, is if you are, you know, in a life situation of fear or whatnot, do the preparations, like focus on compartmentalizing the fear and then focusing on every other compartment of your life that you can compensate that with reasonable, rational, logical ways to, you know, compensate taking self-defense classes. Yeah. You know, because most of the time your fear is irrational and it's not logical. And you think that the world is falling apart when really it isn't. (laughs) And most of the time when we think about the things that we're afraid of don't ever really happen. So, but it is good to be prepared just in case they do happen. I, I do not watch horror movies. I've never allowed my kids to watch them because I feel that, you know, there's enough in the world, you know, that we don't know, we don't need to manifest that and and bring that in our psyche. Dealing with the Mexican gangs was the best thing in the world because it was very fam- familial, like mm-hmm. in a family level, their value system was very similar and I felt very kindred with them. I would ask them for help. And as long as I did that, the machismo would kick in. Yeah, of course, because they want to take care of you. <laughs> So if I was working a shift by myself, you know, I would just ask them and I'm like, do you have to go? Can you just hang out for a little bit? It's getting dark earlier. You know, would you mind? They would literally drink their beers outside in their cars until my shift was over. They really watched out for me. And, And I was, like I said, 14, 15, 16 years old. Two guys came in and they... You know, they were shoplifting basic stuff like milk and Snicker bars. No big deal. But but I have to mark my territory. This is my territory. No matter what, you know, like you don't come in and without my permission, you know. And so I snuck up behind them, one of them, and I handcuffed him. <gasps> Where did you get handcuffs from? Girl. <laughs> you had them? Plan B. Oh, my gosh. So I handcuffed him to the back office um, door, which had chicken wire on it. And I had the whole shift. The other guy escaped. So and, like if for the audience, if they see me, like I really look like a princess, like, you know, I am a very feminine, you know, kind of a gal. He couldn't believe it. And he was, you know, of course, yelling and screaming and, and whatnot. But I hooked him up to the chicken wire of the, of the door. So I had the whole shift. So his mm-hmm. other friend was walking back and forth in the front, not knowing what I had done to him. So anyway, so I had him all day hooked up and he peed in his pants. And every time a customer would come in, he was asking the customer to call the police on his behalf because he was afraid that I was going to do something else to him. Fast forward, I am working here in Southern California. I'm a real estate appraiser. I have my own business. I call my brother and I'm like, hey, I need someone to set up my QuickBooks and set up my accounting. And he goes, okay, well, I know somebody. So I spend a Saturday with this guy and, you know, totally opening up my books and, you know, he's setting up my QuickBooks on the accounting. And then he looks at me and he goes, you don't recognize me, do you? I'm like, no, who are you? And he goes, I'm the guy that was the one that ran out. (gasps) Oh, the guy that ran out. He wasn't the one that I handcuffed. He was the other guy. Oh my gosh. (laughs) What a small world. It was. And I'm like, wait, time out, time out. Then he goes, no. The crazy thing is, is we all kind of had a crush on her. Aww. <laughs> That's probably why they were messing with you. <laughs> That's funny. So, so yeah. So that was just like the cutest little story of coming full circle. But what a beautiful story that, you know, to, a testament to him that he cleaned up. He was one of the gang 
But then he became a pastor in a church, and like, how beautiful is that? Yeah. Anyway, so, so you know, we had our time, and there was one pivotal moment, and that was when I was living in Seattle. I was a property manager and, you know, dealing with gangs and Samoan gangs up there and all of that, you know. And I would be like, hey, you know, instead of me paying an attorney, why don't I just get the money and you could, you know, go find some other place to live because mm-hmm. I'm going to evict you either way. Why should I give the money to a gringo, you know, when I could give it to you, you know, and I gave them the respect of like, look, I know you're having a hard time. We want to give the money to them. You know, let me let me help you. It, it changed the dynamics. Because you related to them and you understood what it was like to be the underdog. So I was in Seattle and um, my dad had lymphoma and it was a tough time. He survived so many years after, you know, the so-called death sentence from the doctors. You know, you only have six months to live. But, you know, he had had a a wonderful life for five years thereafter. But there was one time where it was really critical. He had gotten pneumonia and he was very weak. So I flew into... California. He was at Fountain Valley Hospital and I was running to him and I was so close to my father and he was my true fearless coach warrior. And I run in there and, you know, he has the oxygen mask on his, his nose and mouth. And I'm like, Baba, Baba, you know, please, you know, don't go, you know, like, this is not it. You know, you can't, I was just about to go through a divorce. I was, you know, channeling everything from Seattle to move back to Southern California you know, re-foundation of my life, everything. And I'm like, no, Baba, no, you know, I need you. I need you. You know, don't go. Of course, we're selfish. Like, how stupid is that? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's fighting for his life. And I'm like, no, no, I need, I need you. You know, yeah. you can't go now. It's not convenient. And he takes off his oxygen mask and he goes, no. And, and my father was a man of few words. He was mm-hmm. a lawyer. He was a, a writer. So it was always calculated words, you know. And there is such a thing as a stupid question. You know, like there is, you know, don't ask stupid questions. So he was very much that, you know, wise person. So he says, no, so you don't need anything. You don't need anyone. Only in life, you need beverage. He puts the oxygen mask on and he snoozes off. And I am going into this metaphysical state of mind like, what was that? Was it? Okay, beverage. Maybe he means that we are truly just... We need fluid to survive. Like he, maybe he meant survivalist level of like you can survive on anything. You don't need anything. He used to drink alcohol, so maybe he meant stop being such a wuss. You know, like mm-hmm. you know, take a shot and relax. I was questioning every every word was always calculated with him, and I'm like, and then a few minutes later, takes his oxygen mask off. Imagine like he's in like in dozing off zone. And he knew that something was off. He comes back and he goes, no, no, not beverage. Suhan, only you need courage. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And that, folks, is my life. So tell us about Elage, because seriously, you gave me a sample and I love this thing, this serum. I feel like it's God's potion. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Um, so she has this company, it's a skincare line, but there is this lotion that she gave me a sample of and you put it on your cracked heels, ladies. And it is seriously God's potion because <laughs> it heals all of the cracks and your skin is baby soft again. Yeah, it is crazy. It is. Please don't ask me how it works. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> I, you don't have to tell us I've the secrets. I've studied it inside and out and I wish I could give you the answer, but I don't know. 
So it started out, my grandfather uh, was a surgeon and he created a lodge for wound care for the Turkish army because they didn't have something like when you're out in the field and you get wounds, you need something to heal, you know, the wound. So it was post-op surgical and wounds and burns and cuts and scrapes and stuff like that. So they would not get infected as well. Mm -hmm. So there's like antimicrobial properties in it naturally. So, and it's all natural, no alcohol, no preservatives, none of that. And 2008, I was in real estate, Mm -hmm. you know, for 20 something years. And 2008, the economy crashed. Yeah, I was there, girl. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I had no idea what I was going to do. I went to my hairstylist and uh, he had some hand eczema. And anything, we have to protect our hairstylists, do we not? Absolutely. Yes, we do. (laughs) So I just pulled out the goop. It was in some, you know, unmarked jar. And I gave it to him and I said, here, try this. Did not have the money to pay a tip. So that was like in lieu of a tip. He basically called me a week later. I was on Moulton Parkway, Laguna Hills. And he said, name your price. That was the aha moment right then. And I was like, oh my gosh, what if I've been sitting on a lottery ticket all these years and did nothing, you know? And it was kind of a joke in the family that whenever we had guests over, they would all like go into our bathroom cupboards looking for it. Oh, really? Yeah. So it was was kind of a joke. My mom has amazing skin and um, she's like 75 and she has no wrinkles. And Mm. it's just very... It's a very thick, rich emollient. So it's not like your typical moisturizer. So everyone in the family, you know, when I told them I'm thinking of, you know, making a lodge. And then they were like, no, because Americans don't like this kind of a moisturizer. They like moisturizers that when you put them on, they feel fluffy and they feel good when you put it on. This is so thick. It's dense, you know, so it's not like a typical and it kind of feels like it's heavy and it's, you know, heavy oils. It's like thicker than Vaseline. Yeah. Like heavy duty. So this is kind of like for the desperate, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what I call it, a desperado. So I basically in 2008, I said, you know, let me try this. I call my mom in Syria. She was living there before the war. And um, I said, mom, I want to do this. Give me the recipe. She goes, no, absolutely not. (laughs) Like, why? She said, because there's no way that you can tolerate it, that you can't handle this. You know, you failed chemistry in high school, which is true. Uh Uh-huh. And you're not going to be able to find the ingredients in America. Your aunt burned her face off, you know, because really? it's very complicated. Like mm-hmm. the, the procedure in of itself is very complicated and there are ingredients that are not compatible with each other. And so therefore, you know, it's procedural. Yeah. So any variation, like if there's the temperature outside and the humidity or something changes, it changes everything. Uh-huh. So it's complicated. So anyway, so everyone said no. They said Americans are not going to like it, yada, yada. The only person that said anything was my husband. He said, go for it. Oh. Yeah. And we live in Orange County. And he said, you know, if anything, let's do this in Palm Springs because that's where the desert is. There's drier skin. There's older population. The demographics are going to be better. There's, you know, the snowbirds that come in from Canada and Chicago and, you know, all the cold areas. So they're going to come. They're going to come from extreme cold to extreme hot. This, you know, like... We didn't know all that, honestly, like, but it it was a perfect storm Mm -hmm. to be in Palm Springs. After losing everything in 2008, I had three properties, bankruptcy, car repo, you know, everything. So literally buying a tent for $79 at Walmart was a big deal, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, there's, there's something very liberating about losing everything. You know, like at at this point, you know, it, it comes back to being fearless because, you know, when you've lost everything, you've got nothing to lose. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like you can't go further down than, yeah. you know, struggling to buy a $79 tent at Walmart. Yeah. And you realize that none of that stuff really makes you who you are. Yeah. 
It, it, it eats away at your ego. It does. It really does. It does eat away at your ego. <laughs> oh, trust me. I know. <laughs> it's not easy. Yeah. But lo and behold, first weekend, I get there. I don't know what I'm doing. My husband is like behind me. I had these beautiful green and black curtains that I went to downtown LA to get the fabrics. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting there behind the curtains. And he's like, shut up. <laughs> because I would talk too much, you know, and I'd be like, Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what to say. I don't know how to sell my product. I don't know how to price it. Yeah. So for people that want to start their product or launch in a farmer's market or something like that, I, I bounce up and down and I'm like, do it, do it, do it, do it. It is the best thing in the world. Like the land of opportunity is really filled with, you know, little mom and pops that started at farmer's markets and these little, you know, quirky boutiques you know, things. And please don't underestimate the power of doing that. Like if you want to make candles, if you want to go out there and, you know, knit and crochet, which is the greatest, newest thing, do it and sell. You know, there's so much demand for eclectic, handmade things. So please, if you're listening, you know, I highly encourage you or contact me and I will give you a Ruhaha, you know, love session to do it. It's so horrible to the ego though. It is. Well, you're going to get a lot of rejection at first. You're going to get a lot of resistance. But then once people start to actually use the product or taste your product or whatever it is that you're selling, you're going to get that small fan club. Like you already have a fan in me with Elage because it really works. Thank you. Yeah. You know, a lot of it also is, you know, just a trust factor, you know, and I was very transparent and I didn't know the answers. I don't know why it works. I don't know how it works. And I tell people and they come back and they try to figure it out and tell me. So being humble, I think is a big deal as well, you know, and, you know, obviously to be authentic about it, not, you know, fake it. Like Golda Meir once said, don't be too humble. You're not that great. (gasps) (laughs) Like, don't fake it. Yeah. But I like, uh, you know what? I really like that you're not being a snake oils salesman, a snake oil salesman. You're not like, oh, you should do this. It cures everything. No, you're like, I actually don't know how it uh, how it works, but it works and you should try it. You thank know? you. Yeah, thank you. I, I, that was a lesson as well, but I honestly did not know. I really didn't because no one in my family actually had any skin conditions. And so, you know, for us, it was just kind of like that, the Windex, you know, for my big fat Greek wedding, yeah. you know, Elage was just kind of like a, you know, all purpose, whatever you need, it, it works on. So from intense moisturization to, you know, whatever. So the, this is the crazy thing. So as I was selling for the first few weeks, people started coming back to me a few weeks later and some had fear in their eyes and they, you know, they came and some were angry and then they were like, you know, what's in this? Why is it working better than my eczema prescription product? Do you have steroids in here? Is it corticosteroids? I honestly did not know what they were talking about. First of all, I really didn't know what eczema or psoriasis was back then. I didn't even know how to spell them. And, you know, whether there's an X, eczema, psoriasis, silent P, I did not know any of this. Okay. Second, when they said steroids, I was thinking Arnold Schwarzenegger pumping his muscles. I had no idea there was such a thing as topical steroids, corticosteroids, hydrocortisone. Those are, you know, the synthetic equivalent of our body's production of cortisol. So what our body produces cortisol, cortisone is the synthetic version. So when your body stresses out and can't produce enough of the cortisol to reduce inflammation, then that's why they use hydrocortisone and then the, you know, the increasing degrees of it all the way to clobetasol, all the way to the highest level. So I had no clue about any of this. 
So when they came back and they were angry, suspicious, they were saying, nothing works this good. There must be, because the way cortisone works is it's like magic. It totally decreases the inflammation of the eczema or psoriasis flare up immediately. So then I'm like, why are you mad if it's working? And then they were like, because I just, I don't want to be addicted to steroids anymore. So I kept hearing that over and over and over again. And, and they were all saying this thing called steroid rebound phenomenon. And they would use steroids and then they would stop and then it would come back worse. The eczema would come back worse, worse. And then the doctors would just keep prescribing stronger and stronger and stronger steroids to the point where they would graduate to the final level. Nothing else would work. Then they would tell them, saran wrap your body, put the steroids on. It's called wet wrapping. Then you saran wrap your body, which suffocates your skin and is so dangerous. Like those doctors should go into malpractice lawsuits. Yeah, it's a very dangerous condition. And so what I started to hear over and over again, and I thought, like, how could I be in a fishbowl? How could I be hearing the same exact thing over and over and over again? Turns out that there's a condition called topical steroid addiction. And these people were so sick and tired of the system that they were prescribed stronger, stronger, stronger medications without any diagnosis as to what the original cause was. So they ended up with addictions. So their adrenal glands shut down. Their production of cortisol was nil, zero, zilch, nothing. So now they were in a situation where they were like, it's called adrenal fatigue, adrenal fatigue syndrome. Which makes them really tired. Yes. And then it shuts down their immune system, their endocrine system, it, it you know, decreases their metabolism, shot, shoots up their potential for diabetes, <gasps> neuropathy, like so many other factors kick in. So here I am, I'm listening to all of this, crying in my booth. I never wore like makeup or mascara when I was working because <laughs> I would end up crying all the time. You'll have like raccoon eyes. <laughs> and people would just sit there and tell me their stories, their skin and what happened, what happened, what happened. And I started collecting them and collecting and collecting. And then I ended up with one of the biggest databases of before and after cases. And then I started taking pictures of, you know, people's case studies with their skin before they used Delage and after they used Delage. And then I would just keep in touch with them. And they would tell me things like, yeah, when I use your product two times a day, the results are meh. But when I use it three times a day, the results are phenomenal. Why doesn't my doctor know about this? And I'm like, oh, okay. So I write that down, you know, like, okay, two times a day, the results are meh, you know? So that was that. And then of course the customers were wonderful. They would come back and every year from Canada or whatever. And then they would be like, okay, so have you auditioned for Shark Tank? Have you, you know, done your business plan? And I'm like, no. I was just doing this just to, you know, like help financially with my family in the situation. I wanted to stay off the radar. I was not making medical claims. I never said this worked for anything. I was just like, it's an intensive moisturizer. It was for burns and wounds and cuts and scrapes, you know, and for scar tissue, like to reduce the scarring. That's where it blows your mind. Honestly, like if I was going to say anything, like, and especially new scars, like by far it blows Mederma out of the water. By far bar blows it out of the water. And we have like, you know, neck to neck, knee to knee, you know, case studies. So is this, I mean, cause I've just been using it for my cracked heels. So it, you could use it for other things too. Yeah. Anywhere, wow. anywhere in your body, like even private parts, genitals, any of that. <gasps> wow. So, so these customers would come back and every year they would encourage me, you know, go, go to the next level, go to the next level. So one day QVC called me and a buyer had been in the street fair at the College of the Desert street fair. And uh, she said that she used it on her son and it worked and they were interested. And I'm like, 
great. I jumped out of my seat and I'm like, I will be in Philadelphia next week. I will meet with you. And don't worry, I won't make any claims. I, you know, I'll say it's just a moisturizer. And she's like, no, no, QVC does not need another moisturizer. We need something for eczema that's non-steroidal. And I'm like, okay, Elage, here we come. And she's like, okay, so um, this is what I need from you. I need your monograph and I need your drug panel. I'm like, okay, I'll get that to you on Monday. Tiki tack, tiki tack, Google drug monograph. What does that mean? Drug panel? Yeah. Had no clue. You know, again, it's that fearlessness of like, I'm diving into this. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to manufacture this. I don't, like, I knew nothing. So a year later, because that drug monograph, drug panel, I hired an attorney that used to work for the FDA that dreamt, you know, ship and became private. And he helped me. And I have some ingredients that are not known in America, but he just happened to know it because he had another client that did testing. And so I was able to, you know, ride that wave. We got a drug monograph and we became registered as an FDA product over the counter medication with an NDC number. And wow. Yeah. And so we did it. And then I called QVC and that girl no longer works there. She works at HSN. I'm like, what? No way. But meanwhile, um, I auditioned for Shark Tank and I got a call back and then they wanted the second round. They needed a video for the Uh second producers, you know, and then I hired somebody to do my video. As we were filming, the guy basically said, oh, what is this for? And I'm like, oh, it's because of Shark Tank. And I mean, and he goes, well, are you looking for an investor, a shark, or do you want to do licensing? And I'm like, well, licensing would be better. Not many people know what licensing is. So licensing is basically that you have developed a product, you developed a brand, a name, you know, the trademarks and whatnot. And this company comes along who's very well established in marketing, manufacturing, distribution. They've got all the wheels turning. They're looking for new products. They take entrepreneur like yourself, myself, and they basically take you, we sign the contracts, and they rent your product. So they rent the name, Elage. They rent the formulation. They rent my intellectual property and my database of customers. And then they get the product, you know, where we have national TV commercials within a month. Like literally, I met these people. They saw the video, the raw footage that I filmed that day. And they were like, when can we meet her? We had breakfast in Redondo Beach the next morning. We shook hands. That was it. Within a month, we were filming in Laguna Beach, our national television commercial. July, we were national TV airing. October, we signed a mass deal with the largest, one of the top five national distribution marketing companies. November, we were in full-scale production, manufacturing over 250,000 units and another 50,000, so like almost 300,000 units in November. December, we were in Dr. Leonard's medical catalog. January, we were in every store nationwide. <gasps> that is awesome. Every Bed Bath & Beyond, every Walmart, so many like Kmarts, you know, drugstores, all of that nationwide, hundreds of stores. So it was amazing. It was incredible. It was a wonderful thing. And, you know, I hate being an entrepreneur. I'm sorry. I'm, I know your audience are probably like majority <laughs> like they, you know, dream of the entrepreneur thing. Like I am a nerd. I am someone that loves writing. I would be in a cave with Wi-Fi and chocolate and I'd be happily ever after, you know, like I am not that entrepreneur type. So, but when you have a good product, like, you know, I'm not bragging, forgive me. I'm just saying that like the product is good. And and you get these love letters from people where they're just like, this helped me. It saved, you know, my life eczema. And 
you know, I can walk now because my feet were completely raw on the underside or I can get a job now because nobody wanted to shake my hand. And, you know, when you get letters like that, you sense like this responsibility. So for me till today, I hate selling and I hate the whole process. But as long as I'm educating, as long as I am serving the legacy of my family, the name, my grandfather, the product, I'm okay. You know, like it's always been about that, you know, and early on, you know, when I started sensing that Elage could work on a more medicinal kind of a level. I saw this one man, his name was Dan. He was wearing shorts at the street fair. He walked by and I could see the psoriasis all over his body and his legs. And I ran after him. I ran out of my booth down the aisle and I was like, sir, sir, excuse me. Can you come? I, I've got a product for you. And, and whatever. he followed me back into my booth and I showed him Elage. And then he just shook his hand and said, no, I'm not interested. I'm like, sir, sir, I'll give it to you for free you know, just try it. And, you know, can you just give me back the feedback? And he goes, it's not the money. And he looked at me with such, like, how dare you insult me like that? And I was, I was so embarrassed. And I said, well, what is it? He said, I just don't want to live with hope. I cried all the way back to Orange County that day. And that's when I realized that, you know, I can't snake oil this. I can't be that person. I can, this, and with eczema and psoriasis till now, you know, the patients are told there is no cure. You know, so for cancer, HIV, anything else, there's a cure. But eczema and psoriasis, there's no cure. How dare they say that? And I'm not saying my product is a cure. What I'm saying is that God did not put us on this earth without cures, you know, and there is cures. There's going to be the the autoimmune, you know, d- diet, you know, the anti-inflammatory diets, you know, the the stress reduction. Those are the cures, you know, it's lifestyle. It's no sugar, no alcohol. That's what I'm pointing at. Mm-hmm. I'm not pointing at my product. I'm pointing at Elage being a bridge for your skin, you know, that doesn't have side effects like topical steroids does. But the the other cures are, are within your control, you know. So I focused a lot on that. The licensing deal, it was amazing. I think first quarter sales were like $1,645,000 wow. the first quarter. And that was for an unknown virtual product that no one knew about. But, you know, Walmart was horrible. They took my $40 jar and they priced it at $19.99. I did not know. And, you know, when I was signing the contract, I was asking them, okay, so how much are we going to price this? Where are we going to put this? And they said, well, the market dictates that, you know, it's, you know, supply and demand. And I'm like, I know that. But nowhere in my wildest dreams did I expect my $40 jar to be priced at $19.99. There's no way that I could survive that way because like I get my ingredients from Europe. I don't do China. Like my vitamin E is precious. So I source so carefully. I know my suppliers. And so for $19.99, it's impossible. And by the time I pay everyone between me and Walmart, there's nothing left for me. So that killed me. And then when they did $19.99, then Bed Bath & Beyond did $19.99. And, you know, they set the, they're the gorilla. So they set the standard on everything. So the good in this is that we got great exposure. You know, so on their tab, on their dime, they basically paid for everything and we scaled production. We got into mass retail. Um, The reviews are great online. It was wonderful, you know, but as far as me financially, the numbers were not working. So again, I had to put my ego aside because I was getting congratulations from all of my customers and the numbers, you know, again, it's take the emotion out of your fear and your emotions and be logical and rational and reasonable. Let the numbers decide when it comes to business, the numbers have to decide. So I had to make the critical decision of relinquishing the contract and I did. And I pulled out of retail because retail is not the same. Like the American dream of, you know, go, 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 you know, get into retail, go go big, go big, go big or go home. Honestly, 
that's not the way it is anymore. Like now it is back to mom and pop shops and the boutiques and and the millennials of today, they want to know who the CEO is and they want to contact me and be touchy-feely on social media. And they want that contact. And then when I was separated out and my company became corporate and it was huge and we had a customer service department and all of that, Suhan was no longer there and they wanted Suhan. And I want them because these are the same people that taught me everything about skin conditions and eczema and psoriasis and autoimmune and topical steroid addiction. So how could I betray them now? You know, I actually wrote a book, it's called Skin Confessions. And I wrote another book, Topical Steroid Side Effects. And Topical Steroid Side Effects was a number one bestseller in three categories on Amazon last summer. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. So, so what they taught me, I studied and I databased and I created, and there's a whole underground community of people that are addicted to topical steroids that are trying to get out of it. And I became friends with so many of them and it's a whole community. Anyway, so I took the Elage out of stores and it was devastating because at that point, Elage was being liquidated out of the stores and then you could find it in TJ Maxx and Burlington Coat Factory. And you know, when I first started and, you know, we're putting labels on the jars in the dining room after Thanksgiving, you know, my youngest daughter, who was probably around 12 or 13, and she said, Mama, when are you going to become successful? Like, when will you know you're successful? I said the most absurd thing. When I walk into some random store and I don't even know that they're selling my product is when I'll know that I, I made it. That like our distribution is so wide and so encompassing that it's everywhere that I don't even know. I walk into a store, I don't even know it's there. That literally happened. <sighs> it snuck up on me. You know, like, you know, the power of the secret manifesting, you know, mm-hmm. be careful what you wish for. <laughs> because when I wish for it, I didn't clarify that it would be at the price that I designate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, be specific. <laughs> the moral of the story is wish at your highest capacity, like the far beyond your capacity, but wish specifically because <laughs> it will come true. So anyway, so then I had to relinquish everything, wait for the liquidation. I couldn't even sell my product during that time because I couldn't compete with myself because the product was being sold at liquidation prices. And then finally, I was able to get it back maybe about a year and a half ago and I relaunched everything online. So as of today, no one can buy any Elage except for me. It's going to be either from elagenaturally.com or Amazon that I ship to them and they do FBA, so fulfilled by Amazon, but it's me shipping to them. So I'm in a good place now where I manufacture once a year and then I warehouse and stockpile everything over to the fulfillment center and to Amazon. And then they ship out and we export every day, Poland, New Zealand, Australia. And Elage has actually walked cross country across Greenland. Nice. Biggest ice cap in the world. It's gone through and it doesn't freeze at negative 30 degrees. So yeah, so we have, you know, people, the influencers and brand marketers that actually, you know, really, truly love Elage. So it's been, you know, a great journey. It comes back to fearlessness. Yeah, a lot of lessons learned. But yeah, I loved how you didn't know anything about how to launch a product or how to make it big or licensing or anything. And it's like, this is what I love about entrepreneurship. Nobody knows, really. Nobody knows how to do business. We're just all learning at the same time. Nada, nothing. (laughs) And, you know, again, it it comes back like, what's the secret to success? Fearless. You know, knowledge, you know, I'm a nerd. I love knowledge, Mm -hmm. you know, but knowledge is crippling. Be careful. You know, like the more you know, the more you know. Oh, my goodness. So what would you say to the women who are listening to this podcast? What is your nugget of wisdom that you would leave to them 
You only need beverage. <laughs> you only need courage. Compartmentalize the fear. You know, look, there, there are women here that are going to be listening that are dealing with, you know, a stalker, you know, someone who, an ex-husband, boyfriend, you know, that has legitimate reason to be fearful. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is not to discount that. This is not to diffuse that. Please, please, ladies, if you're listening, that's not what this is. This is truly about raising the warrior awareness in you and learning that, you know what? Fear is part of my journey. I'm going to compartmentalize it. That's all I can say is if you compartmentalize it and take the emotion out of it, go into survival mode of what's the logic, what's the reason, and how can I prepare for it? So look at the worst case scenario. You know, are they going to pour gasoline around your house and set you on fire? And, you know, back then we didn't even have the police on our side. So, you know, we had fire extinguishers everywhere. My father slept in the downtown stairway. My brothers would sleep in the other areas where the other windows were. I'm not saying that's a life to live. I am saying that that was a matter of control. Mm -hmm. We felt that we were taking control back by being more prepared. So in the worst of scenarios, whether we're dealing with war, having enough food, having enough, you know, like right now with the coronavirus, we're dealing with this, you know, having the toilet paper, having all of the, you know, the commodities that, you know, are necessary. Once you have those in place, you know, now it's a matter of role modeling for your children, role modeling for your family and other women, you know, that are not as strong as you. I had a breakdown yesterday. I was jam-packed listening to the news. I couldn't take it anymore. I broke down. I went into bed. I crawled under the covers three hours and I slept and I like kept waking up. I forced myself to go back in. And then somebody wrote something from the WeOC. I think it was Sylvia Adler. And she said, that somebody posted a picture of me and said, you know, Suhan is a force of nature. Here I am bundled up in the covers of my bed because I couldn't handle the reality of the news anymore about coronavirus. And I went into my little cave. But you're, you shouldn't feel shame because you're still human, regardless of what's in your genetic makeup of like these amazing circassian women, you're still Suhan and you still have like all of us have a little bit of fear in us. And there is only so much that we can control before like your reality sets in. Like we cannot control the coronavirus. We can control how we react to it. And yes, there is going to be times where you're going to lose control as a woman. You're going to have emotional days and crawl under the, you know, covers. And that's okay, you know, but you are a force of nature. And that's one thing that we need to, as women, is realize that we are a force of nature. We are fearless. We are amazing women, you know, that can actually do a lot. When you think back to all the things that you've done, as I'm listening to your story, everything that you've survived, it's like, survived strength, survived strength. And then what happens? Strength times strength times strength equals power. I, I, I think it's, it's that I acknowledge it. Like I acknowledge that moment, you know, those three hours yesterday where I was so broken, you know, and then it took someone, you know, to describe me a certain way. And I'm like, wow, they think of me that way. And then I rose. And mm-hmm. let me tell you, I have the cleanest bathroom, bedroom, closet <laughs> right now because it energized me. And then I was like, the only thing I have control over right now is my laundry. Yeah. The only it, That may sound silly. But, no, it doesn't. But I had control over my mindset. And let me clear things. Let me minimize. Let me give this away to Sibyl, you know, my favorite charity. 
let me, you know, do something that I feel empowered. That channeled into me actually doing like 15 minutes on my little sponge treadmill. And, you know, that was 10, 15 minutes of exercise that I would not have done, you know? So the little itty bitty steps helped. And like I said, it's compartmentalized. It was, you know, just put one thing away, put one thing away. And that was it. That's one thing that I've been reading this book. It's called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. It's a really good book. I highly recommend it to everyone who is listening. But I I like how he says that we have absolutely no control over our past or our future. The only thing we have control of is today. And so in that moment when you're underneath those covers, it's you were, you know, trying to control the future and what coronavirus is going to happen. Well, we have no control over it. And if it happens to us, it happens to us. And that is our story. But we can't just crawl under the covers and not live our lives. And that's just what fear does. It makes us, you know, debilitate into these people that we're not supposed to be. So be fearless, get out there, still live your life. If it happens to you, it happens to you. Wash your hands. It's pretty simple. Don't touch your face, you know, don't hug. Um, So just take care of yourself. Thank you guys again for listening to another episode of Journey of a Fearless Female. I'm your host, Paola Rosser. You can find me on Facebook, The Fearless Female Movement. You can find me on Instagram at Fearless Female Podcast. You can find my personal page at Paola Rosser. Suhan, where can my listeners find you? My website for Alage is alagenaturally.com. So it's E-L-A-J naturally.com. And that's where the skincare product and that's where I showed my fearless entrepreneurial side. I do have a YouTube channel and that's where you can find all the information about Circassians and immigrants and refugees. My name, Sue Handbeck. Sue Handbeck. And that's S-U-H-E-I-N-B-E-C-K. All right, guys, tune in next week for another episode. Goodbye. Goodbye.